0: About it. Deep conversations with Uli Baer on big ideas and great books. Well, I'm really happy to welcome uh, my colleague from New York University, Wendy Lee, today to this podcast. Welcome, Wendy, to Think About It.
1: Thank you,
0: Uli. I'm so excited to speak to you today. And before we talk about what we want to talk about with Jane Austen, uh, which is your specialty, among other things. Just want to remind our listeners to Think About It podcast. We have a lot of uh, conversations on books and ideas. You can find it at uh, Think About It on Instagram. I'm on Instagram, uli.bear. I'm also on Twitter, uli.nyc. And you can follow the podcast on YouTube and all the other podcast places. It makes a great difference if you follow and subscribe because it allows other people to find it. Mm -hmm. And I produced this for... The reasons we'll discuss in this podcast, because I care about books. And I love talking to people who care about books, like Wendy. (laughs) So, Wendy, you are a professor of English at NYU, and you've published widely on Jane Austen, 19th century English literature, and your book, Failures of Feeling, Insensibility and the Novel, was published by Stanford University Press, where you look at this particular strange character of the insensible person in in English fiction and philosophy. But before we get there, mm. because this book is really an interesting kind of idea that insensibility or insensitivity is actually a way of being in the world. Can you just start us out by sort of your interest in Jane Austen, how that started? Because Austen is one of one of the authors, I think, who probably inspires more of a cult following than many others, right? People who love Austen, really love Austen.
1: Yes, I'm, I'm thinking about them now a lot because I'm working on this book about Jane Austen and the end of life. And I'm thinking about these people that are called the Janeites. And so we were saying earlier, my dissertation advisor at Princeton was, this, was Claudia Johnson. And so Claudia Johnson and um, this woman at Harvard, Deidre Lynch, and others, but those two in particular, have uncovered so much of the history of the Jainites. And it's pretty miraculous how readers have gotten through war, um, political crises, you know, mostly men, honestly, um, <laughs> and mostly men of state. Um, Winston Churchill, uh, um, you know, Kipling was the originator of the story called The Janeites. But it's not just that certain readers gravitate to her fiction, but they truly need her words to get them through cyclical crises mm. in their lifetimes. And so um, that they just really are a phenomenon. And myself, you know, it was no coincidence for me, and I'm sure for many others, that on September 12th, 2001, you started to really reread every sentence. Oh, really? Um, and then again, in this COVID era, yeah. um, people were really, really rereading and needing to read uh, Jane Austen. And, and I held a COVID tea time every week, every two weeks for my students to read together. And yeah, I think it's it's a need that people have and she almost uniquely fulfills that need.
0: Yeah, almost uniquely. I mean, to turn to a text. So what do you think people get in this experience of reading her sentences?
1: My claim that I'm trying to test out is that Behind, it's a very compact oeuvre and you have access not just to perfect language, but perfectly, that is to say, totally conceived worlds yeah. and a kind of supreme intelligence guiding and knowing those worlds. And so there's something about accessing that intelligence that completeness through language, it is a divine experience. And it is both very much of their world, personalities, uh, situations, you know, all kinds of horrible, annoying, boring things, <laughs> and people and encounters, every sort of key of emotion. But there's something that holds that whole experience. And so what you encounter is the thing that holds all of that experience, all of that consciousness, every possible event. And that kind of communion is what the Janeites are in it for.
0: If you stay with that, there's a kind of world created in Jane Austen's novels with all these people, complex people, some very annoying, some very charming some very charming who do very annoying things, who disappoint you, there's overcoming disappointment. Um, And the books become greater, it seems, with every small event because the people become more nuanced or sort of deeper or they reveal something we didn't know. Mm. When you're saying this this intelligence holds this together, this intelligence of Austen also created it. So how do you think people relate to Austen as both allowing us into a world that is kind of, that has a certain coherence, but not, I would say coherence, but not comfort. Mm -hmm. It's a discomforting coherence, but there's something that things are connected. But she's also the creator of this.
1: Yes. Well, I'm trying out this other claim that Jainites are unique because they feel that in their practice of ritual rereading, mm-hmm. it counts as their own practice of writing. It feels like they wrote it, hmm. or they have written it, hmm. and so that her powers become their powers. And the, you know, in, for your question about what is the relationship to this kind of intelligence that could produce this world, right. it's a weird thing where. It amplifies or extends or merges into their own kind of creative power. Yeah. And so, if you're coming back to, you know, Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever, and rich, had lived nearly twenty-one years, whatever, without uh, very little to distress or vex her. You just you know that opening better than you know what your foot looks like or what mm-hmm. your child's face looks like mm-hmm. I mean, you know it so well mm-hmm. and you come back to it as a touchstone every year mm-hmm. or during particular times and it really feels like yours your sentence your creation your form
0: so you hear this language as your own language yes So it that's really interesting it sounds to me what you're saying people using these books as if they're kind of they allow for a ritual of returning to yourself in moments of crisis when it's so hard to find some grounding.
1: I think that's beautiful, Uli. Yeah.
0: But it's hard to return to yourself when it's not even sure what that self is when you're undergoing what you're saying. People read it during war, during COVID, during really difficult situations. But they're encountering now not a self, but they're encountering the self that read Jane Austen. So this language.
1: I think that's exactly right. and. I think that's true that just what, how you formulated it, that you are re-encountering when you've lost a grip on reality and who you are in that reality and what you've been, you get it back yourself back Mm -hmm. through the stability and perfection and known form of that sentence, that sentence, that scene. I think that's,
0: and you're describing as these Jainites, this is a recurring process. So it's not that this is literature as healing, there's trauma, suffering, you read the book, you feel better. They say the book grounds you more deeply in yourself to go through the experience, right? It doesn't deny the experience or doesn't say, and this is actually, because this is haunted, I think the reception of Austen, this is not escapism, right? Because there's, you've discussed this actually in some of your critical review of the literature, Austin for a while used to being sort of escapist fiction or not. You're saying it's quite the opposite.
1: Yes. Um, and I did actually, I'll say that I did, I'm holding in front of me um, Warbler Press's edition of Pride and Prejudice, <laughs> uh, edited and with an afterword by yourself. Yes. Um,
0: with, and with an essay by your world, so I'm in good company. Yeah.
1: And I mean, I actually really liked in your afterword you're going ahead and saying, let's claim this, go ahead, call it escapist fiction because Mm -hmm. it allows people to imagine their lives otherwise, or in another key or another way. And, you know, I I think that's a more subtle claim to like, what do do people mean um, escape escapist fiction? And, and uh, I mean, in, so somebody who I've recently gotten to know is this woman named Carol J. Adams. She is mostly known as being a vegan feminist activist. She wrote this book called The Sexual Politics of Meat. Right. And I had been meaning to read her essay that came out in Critical Inquiry many for many years since it came out. And it was called um, something like Towards a Philosophy of Caregiving. And it just interested me, this topic of caregiving because I'm working on end-of-life stuff. And um, she describes taking care of elderly parents. And, you know, really, it's actually journal entries, a lot of the piece. And so they're pretty brutal conversations about, you know, things happening to mom and dad, pacemakers. Suddenly, I think it's like in maybe in the eight pages in or something, Pride and Prejudice appears. And... (laughs) Basically, she starts to intersperse with all of these brutal caregiving decisions and routines. She's giving an account of her not just reading, but needing to read Pride and Prejudice. Mm -hmm. And so I emailed her, and um, I found out she's working on a book about uh, Jane Austen and caregiving. And when I interviewed her she truly needed to escape her reality in fact through mr darcy yeah but i think it's clear that it allowed her the text allowed her jane austen's world allowed her to re-enter her reality Mm -hmm. with more fortitude Mm -hmm. and more understanding and survive it so that's sort of more of the, yeah.
0: That's what I was <coughs> interested in, this idea of escapism, because I think it's a sort of very facile way to dismiss, I think, a lot more than certain things. It dismisses fantasy, dismisses the, the play of the imagination. It dismisses the kind of freedom to actually enter into someone else's world. And in some ways, what you're saying, for Carol Adams to enter into this world and spend time in that world because she has to be in her own world, I think then escapism is not you denying your own reality, but you're actually learning things in this other reality, or you're actually spending time in a deeper reality. So I always thought, why do we think escapism means simplification? What if it's actually deepening?
1: Yeah, and maybe it also goes to your first point about, is it a a one-time thing? You know, I read it and I toss it. And so I did escape, but when it's rereading, reading re re-re-reading, re-reading, mm-hmm. um, then it is more conducive to this other kind of re-entry. And as you said, this idea that at a time where I've lost my grip even on who I am,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I mean, that's a question too about whatever people mean by escapism how do I know that I knew this reality to begin with? How do I know the world that I'm in? You know, so to escape that world means that I've grasped it and can go, but if I don't understand what I'm living in, you know, give me some other way of knowing a world to know this world.
0: Yeah, escapism is interesting. Escapism presumes there's reality, factual reality, material reality, and everything else is sort of either a luxury or an evasion, when you're saying it could actually be a capability to say you're gaining something, to say actually your first reality isn't quite really even true and real to you. Exactly. And escaping from it means you can make it more real. Like this woman, Carol Adams, coming back to the really harrowing routine of caregiving.
1: Yeah, and even stranger, why do you think that language is less real or that this perfectly (laughs) realized world with knowable people through and through is less real. I mean, that's what interests me about late stage cognition or end of life consciousness. Mm. It's so porous. You know, I know that if I'm a dying person, I know exactly what is painful or pleasurable to me. Instantly, I can tell you, ouch, or wonderful, you know, so it is real to me. Do I know that that thing is real in the world or exists for you? I don't care. I have no investment in the reality as such, but I know it's real. And that's a very interesting time of consciousness. And then what the mind is relationship to languages and for a Jainite or a dying Jainite to Austin's languages. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting to me. So I'm trying to think about those
0: things Yeah, I was thinking of something slightly different, maybe. So I was very close to Victor Ehrlich, who wrote on Russian formalism. He was a critic at Yale. So through my family, I was very, very close to him. And so he was a big critic. And it, toward the end of his life, I spent, I was very fortunate, I got to spend some, a few summers with him when he was very old and then close to dying. And he couldn't sleep. He was an insomniac. He couldn't sleep. It was very difficult. And I said, What do you do when he said, Oh, I have so many people in my head because I've read so many books. And then I said, What do you mean? He said, I think about a lot of the stories and the novels I read through my life. And he literally started reading Victor Hugo when he was 12 as a Polish boy in French. And he said, But they're all, he said, I said, they're not real to me, but they're actually in my mind and I can follow them. And I thought it was such an incredibly moving thing to hear that he didn't discuss with me is Is this a character is this fictional is this made up Is this real he said these people are inhabiting me now which allowed him in these moments of when he wasn't very mobile and he was really close to death he said they were filling him with life mm. and i really so. thought it was remarkable to think oh you spent a lifetime of reading and they're with you mm. <laughs> it was nice. that's
3: incredible
1: isn't yeah. that a kind of a
0: nice it is it, and there's something, what you said, that these characters are, or these, and I don't even know what to call them in Jane or in Brighton, but are they characters? Sure. Are they people? You kind of don't want to call Elizabeth Bennett a character. It almost reduces her, I feel.
1: Yeah, I mean, she's what, a person, I, right? <laughs> I'm curious. Yeah, how do you think about this? Like the status of like, don't talk about them as people. Like, how do you teach that?
0: When- I actually teach really in the wrong way. So I teach a lot of literature as moral dilemmas. And I make my students read stories. And I taught Zora Neil Hurston's story, Sweat, last week in an NYU summer course. To all students, none of them are literature majors. All STEM field, business, sciences, economics. And then I asked them at the end of the story... They have to read, it. it's 10 pages, very dramatic story by the woman who's abused by her husband. I said, should she act at the end of the story or not when he's about to die? Mm-hmm. And I make all of them respond. Mm-hmm. And I treat it like a moral dilemma, not a court case. I said, that the law would decide in this way, what would morality say? What would you say to mm-hmm. this person? Mm-hmm. It's totally wrong teaching. Like, this is not a real person. This is not a moral dilemma. This is a literary text. But I, the students are so engaged and I think what they glimpse is, this person is as real to them as another person they met this afternoon and talked to for 20 minutes. Um, so I'm not so convinced this discussion, whether that's a character, a fictional character, a creation of language, or becomes real is really so productive. Yes. But I'm, I'm curious how you think, because in some ways your book, Failures of Feeling, touches on that in a certain way mm-hmm. because like you're sort of trying to open up a space how do we respond to characters in fiction mm-hmm. who we judge as insensible or the you have this whole kind of genealogy of them the prude and Melville's spartleby who opts out of things and you're yeah. saying they actually have a function in fiction they shouldn't be dismissed
3: mm-hmm.
1: yeah i mean i guess it's still it is interesting to me what we need that characters for or what we need novels for what Mm -hmm. we need them to do for us Mm -hmm. and what they can't do for us and how we act out through them what is possible only through them I am certainly interested in those questions and I also don't have any rules about how to talk about characters and yeah I, I just have no rules I mean because Austin has been adapted so much as movies right. or podcasts or, <clears throat> I mean, uh, rewrites. Blogs there's or, so many
0: rewrites, so fan many, fiction, right? <laughs>
1: so many. And so, and students now, they will have experienced those first. And so I do try to get them to re-encounter Austin as language mm-hmm. and really difficult 18th century language mm-hmm. basically and so um I guess I and I truthfully I don't watch a lot of the things myself
2: the mm-hmm.
1: Be, only because I don't like I I do love did you have you ever seen the Lawrence Olivier
0: oh, version th- of Prime Prejudice yeah the 30s or 40s exactly. or something. Yeah yeah, yeah yeah yeah
1: so that one I watched a lot when I was young <laughs> and I it still does stick in my mind you know right. like those actors yeah and I just think for me, I'm sure this is how it works. Film is so powerful that it's hard to just see language again. And so I almost have to not watch them.
0: So when you tell your students to look at it as language, do you want them to, first of all, realize that someone created this? This is a human creation.
1: Yes. So there is an analogy often used for thinking about Jane Austen with Mozart. That she's a kind of virtuoso mm-hmm. of this medium, mm-hmm. and it really is true. So, um, so at the start of every lecture, I, I teach a, a lecture course here at NYU that's just Jane Austen, and at the start of each lecture, I'll put music on, some kind of usually 18th century classical composition, and the comparison i think with mozart i'll play the paris symphony i can't remember what i play but um you know the idea that when she's a child she's read and been exposed to through her home which is a very literary home Um, her dad's library these brothers very theatrical and, you know, they're reading all the time. They're putting things on all the time. And that she's really absorbed the English language. And the 18th century novel form plays. She just knows what it can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she can just spin things out um, and make it bend to her purpose. And, um, and, and in terms of, when you think about that, not just in terms of like a uh, like words or sentences but in terms of narrative structures then things get more complex and then you're at the level of the symphony or whatever mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and she can do that so young I mean she dies I think 41 right. so she doesn't doesn't have much time um for like a late style but there's a there is it's it's just perfection to the end yeah
0: what you're describing sounds almost as if She's kind of a vessel the way Mozart is a vessel for music. Although you hear five notes and you know it's Mozart. Mm -hmm. You read a sentence and you know it's Austen. So when you you explain this to your students, so to say she has at her command all of English language, she does something very unusual with it that other people are not capable of or trying to do Mm -hmm. in terms of narrative style The kind of economy of character, how in a short dialogue you get an entire picture of two people. That's why I love this exchange between Darcy and Mrs. Bennet in the beginning.
4: The country, said Mr. Darcy, can in general supply but a few subjects for such a study. In a country neighbourhood you move in a very confined and unvarying society. But people themselves alter so much that there is something new to be observed in them forever. Yes, indeed, cried Mrs Bennet, offended by his manner of mentioning a country neighbourhood. I assure you, there is quite as much of that going on in the country as in town. Everybody was surprised, and Darcy, after looking at her for a moment, turned silently away. Mrs Bennet, who fancied she had gained a complete victory over him, continued
0: her triumph. I love that you focused it, on that. It cracked, and in some ways, to be honest, I'll tell you also one thing. I read the book, I reread the book, and then I listened to the whole book as an audio book, which yeah. I do quite a lot and during the pandemic. And the actress, Rosamund Pike,
3: yeah.
0: reads it, and it's so alive, because she has every Mr. Collins, it actually cracks you up the way she impersonates all of them. But that exchange between Dorsey and Mrs. Bennett, you learn so much about two people in the space of Four sentences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when you say to your students, Austin was able to do this, there's something greater than she is that she can orchestrate and manipulate and put together in a way. And yet it's still hers. It's still Austin, Mm -hmm. right? It's still Jane Austen who writes this.
1: And it's weird because that it is through prose. Yeah. So that is the thing, I mean, with teaching is... You can show a clip, and you see it one way, and the scene moves one way. But when you open up weirdly with this very linear word after word right. after word, all the dimensions <laughs> it opens up, like you said in your mind, you see these two people, you see their dynamic, you see, you know, the the slight Mrs. Mm-hmm. Bennett. I mean, all that comes into play through this weird optic that is marks in a row on a page. Um,
0: what do you think that is for us, that we are capable to be taken in by language, by a few marks on paper, to actually really be filled with, like, inner life or something like that, that we see these people in front of us, they are there, they are, and they're quite real, that's why I said they're not character, they're real. Well, since and real, com- like what's real, you know. Okay, <laughs> well, since
3: we're
1: in conversation, I mean, d- tell me how you think a bit about it. as Somebody who writes about photography, yeah, right. You know, like what a photograph opens up.
0: I think photography allows you less participation in the creation of the of the impact it has. I'm actually very bad at screening out photographs' impact on me. I don't like to look at photographs of atrocities. They really impact me, and kind of, I feel they're very like wounding and kind of shocking. Prose, I think, once you're in it, you are participating. So even if it's shocking or cruel or upsetting, it's almost as if you are not co-creating the scene, but because you're reading, you feel, okay, this is happening. This is horrible. But I'm following it along, which means it's not just done to me. There's a part when you're reading. I think you're participating in it. I think that's what language is because we're inhabited by language. I think sight is a little bit different to me. You just see something horrible. You can't unsee it. When it's language, it fills you in a different way. I think. I mean, this is very yeah. unphilosophical. So I don't no, think. I think David Chalmers would be like, yeah. "What are you talking about?" <laughs> 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 but you know when, what you're saying. When people go back and reread this. Yeah.
1: But I wonder. Yeah. I mean, I I think you're. I, you're right. I mean, I I would, allow, you know, that the abstraction of language enables a kind of freedom that visual media doesn't permit. Mm-hmm. And I I wonder, I mean, in thinking of narrative language, like I often think about if you trace a trajectory through film, photography film through something like virtual reality Mm -hmm. you know how i mean i'm curious if how you would think about it like in a in like a v an oculus or something like that because the person feels free and like they're making the decisions right and it's this full immersion
0: yeah
1: i mean how would you compare that
0: to i would think there's still something different imagine you're in a kind of v r situation or whatever you see these things things are happening there's space around you things are moving and everything i think that's still different than language Mm -hmm. because you are kind of sounding it out in your mind right when you're reading and that sounding it out
4: it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife
0: i think a few things happen it's you Who's shaping this reality as much as the author of the page, the text on the on the page, and by sounding it out, you're gaining something because your own language is enriched. and And I think we're all relatively inarticulate in a certain way. You know, it's not just schooling that we know more words, but Simone Weil says at some point, mm-hmm. the cruellest thing is people who don't have the means of expression and she has this figure, they stand before a magistrate, and he says, you're not articulate. And she says it is the cruelest sort of misrecognition of humanity that not being able to articulate oneself is not a failure, but a lack of opportunity or something. So when when we read Austin, we're also getting this language. When we're in a VR space, I don't think we're really getting the skills to create images as much. Yes. Or worlds. So this yes. language, you're saying it stays with people. It's not that they memorize it, but it kind of inhabits you. It rolls around in your head. It's sort of words that are there, phrases that are there. And I think that's a really important skill because we'll all encounter people like Mr. Collins or Lydia or something like that. And they're annoying or they're this or that or Mrs. Bennett or whatever. They embarrass us or they please us or or we want to please them. But We need to learn so many ways of doing that. And I think your book is so, your book, Failures of Feeling, is so interesting. We we need to learn to modulate our own emotions and feelings. And your book is kind of a defense of that, I thought, a little bit. Mm. Not a dismissal and saying, oh, Jane Austen, she's kind of dispassionate. Mm -hmm. You say, you need to live with a lot of people. Yes. Let's say in your family. Yes, that's why I was really interested. I think, there's 26 characters in *Pride yes. and Prejudice*. That's yeah. it. Yeah, it's a great open. That's like that's like, and I thought during the pandemic, I think I saw five people <laughs> for a year.
1: And and to like, your like, thought experiment, you realized you only needed five people.
0: I mean, I would be really happy if five people like me. <laughs> like if five people really like me, and I like them. That's the thing. If it's the five people like me and I don't really care about them, that doesn't matter. But I don't want a fan club. But if I have five friends who I like and they like me and they, you know, they do what friends do, they respect you, they criticize you, all this. That's a lot. Yeah. So I was interested in this book, Pride and Prejudice, during the pandemic it's 26 people <laughs> and you're reading it and you cannot believe what will happen next mm. and you think how could this be when there's only 26 people mm. it cannot be that many things happening and of mm. course what Jane Austen says 26 people of which maybe 10 are main characters is an infinite set of possibilities
1: mm-hmm. yeah yeah and because it ratchets down from there to <laughs> you know to or you know, yeah, I mean, <laughs> if you think it, it's interesting at the how the numbers work out I mean I always think so her last finished novel Persuasion and for me that novel is so cynical Mm -hmm. because basically the number is really down to two (laughs) you're only going to like one other person and also only one other person is ever going to know you really know you Mm -hmm. and frankly that one other person you might have invented them in your your mind
4: (laughs) what do you mean
1: (laughs) consciousness in that novel is so (laughs) porous you know i mean it is this end of life thing she's sick but that what captain wentworth is and how anne elliott the heroine of that novel experiences him as so deep in memory and he is almost like an abstraction sometimes actually my students are so funny on this because when we think about like Captain Wentworth versus Mr. Darcy I mean Mr. Darcy has these great speeches you know he,
0: Um, He's very dashing. He's rich, controls everything behind the scenes, takes no credit. Yeah,
1: same morally, same more. Kind of
0: a (laughs) jerk, but in reality, he did it to really protect the family. And you're so gratified when you realize you're kind of rooting for him, but you're also rooting for Elizabeth because he's such an (laughs) asshole. (laughs) The first time when he snubs her.
4: She is tolerable, but not handsome enough to tempt me.
0: And you kind of think like...
4: He's tolerable.
0: I actually want to have that fortitude when someone rejects me to think, oh, how funny that he doesn't think I'm so attractive. That, was, that scene yeah, is to me amazing. So she yeah. gets snubbed by him. He says he's, he's not that... What does he say? He's, he's not...
4: Tolerable, but not enough to tempt me. I'm in no humor at present to give consequence to young ladies who are slighted by other men. You had better return to your partner and enjoy her smiles. For you are wasting your time with me
0: but this is a woman in 1813 oh, 13, yeah. who some rich super eligible bachelor <laughs> kind of says not enough to tempt me and she laughs she says, as if i would care
1: <laughs> I, I i also love that you focused on that so i'm just curious yeah.
0: how you have that kind of like is yeah. it okay this is my question about yeah. that character yeah when i read that scene i kind of think I want to be this way. Yeah. Then I think, I admire her. Yeah. And then I think, is she for real, to quote my student? <laughs> like, or is she pretending? <laughs> and I think yeah. a lot of what your work is about, like, is this a real emotion, or is she pretending to have this emotion in company?
1: You know what? It's When I read that in your afterword, okay, because, so this is the scene. I mean, Uli, you focus on... Basically, Elizabeth Bennett using that experience of rejection, Mm -hmm. really cutting rejection. Mm -hmm. Somebody says you're not pretty enough to dance with and instantly turning it to a funny story that she can tell her friends and really delighting in entertaining people with that story. I mean, it is it is fantastic. And so when I was reading it, you the way that you describe it, oh, I could even look at it is you say this is this is somebody who can um, be outside of the experience of being rejected. And so they can sort of de-center their own hurt feelings and re-spin it as, you know, an amusing story or some kind of source of pleasure. What was a source of personal Mm -hmm. pain? And actually it was a question that I had about it. I think because I looked into, you know, did this work on, Different thinking about emotions and Mm -hmm. these early ways of like what an emotion is and how it was conceived of um, in earlier periods. And I thought, I wonder if instead of the model where she is personally wounded and has hurt feelings and then is able to put them aside, Mm -hmm. there's a way in which just having this kind of comic sensibility prevents you from actually being wounded in the first place.
0: That's what I was interested in, whether she actually really isn't wounded. She just looks. And does that mean she's able, he sees her in a way as an object in our modern language. She's objectified. He says not attractive enough to tempt me. That's objectifying a woman. You would think, okay, that's very sort of, we would read this in a certain way. And she's like, (laughs) like, so? And then she looks at herself and doesn't agree with this. And she obviously, so she doesn't get wounded because her sensibility is already something. Although this is a question for the book like that, but the book is also about her giving up her pride and her prejudice, mm-hmm. because both characters are kind of blind, not like they're kind of, they're failing to perceive certain things because they're stuck in certain ways of perception, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, so let's go back yeah. So, Do you think she is not wounded by this right away?
3: Well,
1: in in some ways I think that it's the what's like hot or hot yeah. It it is so sadomasochistic like yeah. how they enjoy wounding each other. And so she'll use that snubbing to then in the next dance when William Sir William Lucas is saying, "Oh, you know, do you want to?" Ta-? She's like, "No, I don't want to. You know, don't worry about it. I don't <clears> mind dancing <throat> with this guy." I mean, so and then that, of course, it, attracts him. So it's this I mean, the weird ideology yeah. there is one is this idea that, in you know, basically refute this in the disavowal of powerlessness, of being wounded, of vulnerability, she wins it. That is what yeah. makes her so appealing.
0: That's what I yeah. thought there's a kind of freedom in this character Yeah. and but austin gives us a character who's not free from all these things these slides this pressure the yeah. expectation she has to get married she will ruin her family if she doesn't accept one of those proposals etc so she's not really free but there's freedom in her
1: yeah i think like, i i agree with that that global reading that you have um that she is in the same set of circumstances as Charlotte Lucas. And yet, you know, Carve just refuses that.
0: And what do you think about this one? So Charlotte yeah. Lucas gets yeah. married to Mr. Collins. Yeah. Who is just the most entertaining fellow. Yeah. And, and I really have really Rosamond like Pike's it. words <laughs> in my mind. Yeah. Right? And then Elizabeth says, why would anybody do this and reduce themselves to get married for security and money? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Charlotte says, what am I going to do? Mm
1: -hmm. Well, even better, Charlotte gives this insane theory of marriage, which echoes some early English feminist um, theories of marriage, where basically she says... You know, she has this line: "It's better just not to know, like what your future partner is going to be like, yeah. because the definite definition of marriage is basically increasing alienation." Yeah, and so no matter how <laughs> compatible you are at the beginning, yeah, but it's just better.
0: I think Oscar Wilde makes a great joke out of this later on. Like 80 years later, he says something like, "You better not know anything about your spouse because it oh, should, will only lead to disappointment or something." Like One of those. You know, little.
1: Is that in the play
0: that, that you? Published? Yeah, it's a funny, yeah. like it's one of Oscar Wilde.
1: Exactly. Yeah. But so
0: she says, "You better not know because otherwise you'll be disappointed."
1: Yeah, it'll just hurt more. Right. Like um, if you go in knowing. But,
0: but know, meaning it's going to be tough anyways, right? It's not exactly a good idea.
1: Yeah, more than tough. Like I mean, it really is like the definition of marriage. Yet you grow increasingly um, estranged from yeah, each other. Yeah. And she's already <clears throat> embedded that. Um,
0: and what does Elizabeth Bennet? Who do you would mistake her for Jane Austen's voice in that book?
1: Oh, interesting. This is a very good question. This is always a question. Where is she hiding Jane yeah. Austen? I mean, Pride and Prejudice, in some ways, we're pretty far from Elizabeth's consciousness. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of identifying the narrator with her consciousness. Right. But of course she's so delightful and so free that everybody wants to be her. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I think in what we were talking about in a kind of comic consciousness that can turn things to account and, and detach, I I do think of that as, as Austin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, is there deep, deep feeling there? You know, of course. Mm-hmm. And, and in that way, she could be more aligned with Eleanor Dashwood in Sense and Sensibility, who has very strong control, but also strong feeling and... You know, but, but Less
0: likable in a certain way. A oh yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. People really don't don't like don't her. like Ellen an attachment
0: yeah. that much. No, there's yeah. <laughs> not a fan club for her really.
1: Right, because they're they think she's super repressed and uptight. Right, um, and people think that of Jane Austen mm-hmm. who don't like
3: her.
0: L- yeah, l- let's go to that for in a minute. What Jane Austen's reputation has been for two hundred years, which has changed, but to stay. So Elizabeth said Charlotte Lucas gives this kind of speech and says marriage is going to be alienating in any case. Yeah. You might as well go into it for what you, you know very little that that's going to happen.
3: Yeah.
0: Is Elizabeth Bennet a kind of a critique of marriage at this moment or a kind of feminist cry for saying this is an idiotic system and women should have other choices?
1: I mean, Oh, I, I have to give a shout out to this essay by Ruth Perry called Sleeping with Mr. Collins. It's such a fantastic oh, essay. And it basically, it's about like the invention of sexual disgust. And <laughs> she makes this ingenious argument that sexual disgust is really not a thing. And Early, and you can see it in Pride and Prejudice because Charlotte Lucas can know exactly how stupid Mr. Collins is. And have no problem sleeping with him. It's just an ingenious argument. In case listeners are interested, Ruth Perry.
0: I think people will. <laughs> Who is this Ruth Perry <laughs> sleeping Perry. with, Mr. Collins? Yeah,
1: sleeping with Mr. Collins.
0: Hard right. to imagine sleeping with Mr. Collins. Exactly. And she says this is a re- like. She
1: says it's basically <laughs> an invention, a cultural invention <laughs> that happens later to control women, oh, and but it doesn't okay. exist early on. And, okay. And you know that kind of reading. I mean, whatever one thinks of the argument. It's for me. It's it is definitely more useful to think about Jane Austen from earlier as an 18th century writer because there's so much more wildness and freedom um, going into going into her than to view her back from a Victorian perspective and going going that way. So anyway, but that is that now for the critique of marriage part. I mean. It's weird. There's a there's a line that I I still puzzle with. Okay, so it's when her dad says, I mean, I think, quoted on the on the back of your book. Is it if you marry
0: Mr. Collins? <laughs> not not this one. When if you marry him, I won't speak with you. And if if you do marry him, and if you don't, your mother will. Not
1: speak. Oh, I know. <laughs> no, it, it's 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 later when it's at the end, basically towards the end of the novel, where he says, you know. Um, I thought you hated this guy. Of course, I said yes. I would never refuse this guy anything. He's too alpha male. Um, But he says, but let me advise you to think better of it. I know your disposition. I know that you could be neither happy nor respectable unless you truly esteemed your husband. And then this is the line that my students and I always puzzle over. Unless you looked up to him as a superior. Um, And then he goes on about, you know, it sucks to be in an unequal marriage, not to be able to respect your partner in life. You know, the the sad story of his own marriage. And that's of course her model. But the weird line here is unless you looked up to him as a superior. And so Hmm. we, we always puzzle about that, like for women and the problem of marriage, like is the ideal marriage then to actually look up to your husband? Um, and my students say no that's not what he means that that you that you would always esteem the person that you're with and they don't read the superior as you know a kind of patriarchal
0: but so not above you but but could it be superior just as a like a really great person could they read it like I hope so
1: i mean so, so okay, like when i was reading this Rereading this recently, um, there were parts that make me cringe, you know, that are really heterosexy. I, I, I know I'll rethink this later. I'll probably even regret saying it now. But, you know, there's something about Elizabeth Bennet bringing liveliness you know, to the relationship and Darcy bringing judgment and experience and not, you know, that kind of thing. And I just think,
0: oh, well, God. the Enlightenment has to have a counterpart. I know, it's it's true. rationality and there's emotion. So it's you true. you feel it's too mapped onto gender in this way.
1: Or, you know, I think an, another way of thinking about it is that it's so done up, like mass, he's so manly, man, she's so girly, girl, that it's truly. You but know, she's
0: also so intelligent (laughs) when she reads the letter Darcy's letter about what's his will uh, about his Wickham Wickham, about Wickham and then she dissects this letter in her mind and then she has to take some time off and be in a room and think about the letter and then she has to think about her reaction to the letter and this is what my late teacher Harold Bloom would say. Mm. This is an interiority that is unusual, mm. which he finds only in Shakespeare otherwise. He says, in Austen, it's a character who thinks about her own thinking, steps back and analyzes it. And that growth in one character is very unusual. Yeah. So she actually emerges in another place. And then a the level of plot, of course, from the early rejection mm. and the kind of bitter, sort of like dismissal of Darcy to the end of the plot, this growth, so she is not bringing just emotion and lightness to this relationship. She is a really rational creature. Yeah. Like I mean, she calls her she says a rational creature.
1: Yes, that's right to Mr. Collins.
0: Really yeah. important, right? Yeah. As, I'm a, treat me as a rational creature. And then yeah. basically says like if you assume I can think, I certainly won't marry you. Yeah. Which is also really insulting to him. <laughs> mm-hmm. like, basically you're proposing to me, but just imagine, I could think for myself, and I would mm-hmm. certainly never marry you. But mm-hmm. mm-hmm. like, he, yeah. he gets a pretty harsh rejection from her as well. Yeah.
1: It's a great point that you make that takes us, you know, into the period and and through persuasion with the speech that Anne Elliot makes about women and men. But in other words, if the historical circumstances of like a gentlewoman, you know, sort of distressed gentry you don't really go anywhere, you know, like Mm -hmm. the the men, Darcy here being like, they go London, they do their grand tour, they go wherever. As a woman, you just stay exactly in the same spot. And so it's to your point in in your afterward that where do you find the space to move or to change and you find it in your mind and yeah.
0: And do you think the book, so this is early 18, like 1810 or something like that around this time. So then you have a whole history of novels and then, of course, films, et cetera, of these stories of a woman trying to find a husband. Mm. So I interviewed uh, Susan Ostroff-Weiser about Jane Eyre, and Charlotte Bronte didn't love Jane Austen. It's kind of interesting. Yes. She said, I'm not totally I'm <laughs> clear why you love Jane Austen so yeah. much. And Jane Eyre is the other story, the great story of finding the sort of not-so-handsome-but-dashing man, yeah. ultimately... But when you read Pride and Prejudice at the beginning of this 200 years, which is all the way to The Bachelor.
1: Yeah. And
0: to fantasy, like this kind of gendered fantasy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. What, what do I make of
0: that? Yeah. And like, how do you mm-hmm. teach? Or maybe how yeah. do you even tell your students to say, we're reading a story of, you know, five boy. girls. I need to marry a rich guy. Otherwise, they're going to be destitute
1: yeah so they're like wow
0: thanks for the opening premise here that leaves a lot of options i,
1: I mean it is you know it's, it's i'm glad that you root me back into this reality we're like hey wendy like isn't that what the novels are about i forget you know I mean, really yeah because it's like um the you know the way it's often described it's like it's a like a sonnet has to be this many lines, this right? Bolt. And so you think that's the courtship plot. It's just the form
3: she's
0: has to oh, work okay. with. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, right.
1: But that, you're reminding me like that form. <laughs> I think a lot a of real people. Real thing, like. But
0: let's actually talk about that for yeah. a moment, because in one of you review, um, a couple of books, and and we could talk about how Austen has been perceived, mm-hmm. also, how she's either the kind of spinster, the poker, as Virginia Woolf calls, her, kind of angular, a little bit difficult, yeah. standoffish. Or the nice, charming auntie, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but that the this plot, a lot of people attach themselves to the plot before anything else. Mm-hmm. I think they get the language as a kind of benefit. Yeah, yeah. But don't you think people read this in school and they really read Elizabeth <laughs> and Darcy? No. Yeah,
1: well, I I'm so I wonder. I mean, I think the movie versions. It's true they cut onto Colin Firth in like a wet t-shirt for sure. Yeah, <laughs> but then, then they're when they're hooked into the text mm-hmm. I think like one of the videos, okay, so at the start of like the first day or the second lecture, I'll show three video clips, and one is. This actually very Jane Eyre mashup. It's like a Brontified Pride and Prejudice, which is the Keira Knightley. It's like oh, on right. the moors. It's like raining. There's this. I mean, that's very strange. It definitely is a dream that Pride right. and Prejudice is Jane Eyre, which as Charlotte Bronte like rolling many times over in her grave. Right. And so that's one clip. And then the second is you know some dancing piece from the 1995 Colin Firth right. situation. And and then the third video I show is this thing. That's called Jane Austen Fight Club,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and it, it pretty much is what that description uh, says. And so I asked them, like, okay, which is the which is closer to the actual mm-hmm. Jane Austen? Mm-hmm. And you know, there's a debate about it. For me, it's the Fight Club, totally. Mm-hmm. That there are rules of engagement. Mm-hmm. You go into battle.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you fight,
2: mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm
1: you you know that's it's the thing it's like that's really what it is and so i think they get for the young ones yeah, yeah. they're in a precarious situation every day is precarious they have to go into some social situation yeah. some freaking bl- global capitalist bullshit nonsense right. you know like this crazy internship competition i mean every day they are hustling and fighting and they'd rather I mean it's a lot of emotions a lot of psychic mm-hmm, turmoil mm-hmm. who are their friends who are their enemies mm-hmm, you know all mm-hmm. this kind of crazy strategic competitive right. market economy bullshit that's the marriage market and yeah, yeah, so yeah, right. and then where do you find <laughs> the spaces for genuine emotion attachment as you said is very rare it could be just with your sister. Yeah.
0: And it's very hard to know whether it's genuine mm. because you don't know whether your emotions are really genuine then in this kind of marketplace, which is like Jane Austen all the way to reality TV, where there are rules, people thrown into a setting and say, Oh no, go make make your match.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: You think this seems like a good match, ticks all the boxes. And then you think I'm you're gonna convince yourself this is gonna be my match because you know <laughs> this ticks all the boxes, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, even for Pride and Prejudice, you know, I mean, it's kind of far. I feel like it's 30 miles. But the goal is you actually want to just live close to your sister. Right. So if you can both make matches where your husbands are friends and you get to hang out with each other. Yeah. Because marriage, of course, is the great divider. And so if you win that game, it will estrange you for your life from the people that you know and love. And so how do you square this circle and... And the real, you know, the real relationship as in Jane Austen's life is with your sister. Hmm. And so in Sense of Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice. I mean, again, that one, you know, some, there are only six novels here, but you can think they give it like the sisters in Mansfield Park. They hate each other they're, You know, one is in exile. And again, in Persuasion, that novel, it, you know, definitely you end up with your soulmate mate. But it's so evanescent that you might as well be in a coma by yourself. So, yeah, I mean, it's true. It is about, there is a courtship plot. There is a marriage plot. But it is so much weirder than that. In each novel, I think. Each novel is a different um, experiment with that structure.
0: But what's interesting, what you're saying, how people today are in similar circumstances. Mm. We think we're so free from all these constraints. We think, oh, you know, women can have jobs, they can have their own money, they can have their own legal status.
1: Yes, And, and, and it's weird too how the landscape of gender, I mean, even in this really fluid moment where you think feminism happened, you know, what global capitalism has done to feminism is a nightmare. And so in what
0: sense how do you mean?
1: You know, you still have stay-at-home mothers who are so educated to do good in the world, but you know, just take New York City like then they think I it's it makes more financial sense for me not to work, for me to raise the kids, wow. let my hedge fund husband be the Mr. Darcy out in the world. <laughs> I'm going to groom these offspring and kick ass in my PTA but that's the circumscribed role I'm in as an educated free woman living in 2021 in New York City it's
0: crazy that is actually the way you're describing it that that is like Jane Austen that's crazy Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's like actually you're making me like because I can I see people in front of me and these calculations it's better for me to stay home raise the kids economically makes more sense while he's Fighting the fight on Wall Street. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I mean, another in a separate key. I also think I and mean, surprises me. I don't know what how you think about it, Lily. People's still the mystification and sentimentalization of marriage is kind of adorable and horrifying. Still,
0: well, I asked Ted Olson, who uh, who litigated uh, Windsor versus the United States before the Supreme Court, which established marriage equality which had been renamed from gay marriage, which didn't work socially. So they called it gay marriage equality. So he got, so Edie Windsor received an honorary doctorate in NYU and Ted Olson, I think Theodore Olson, he was there, he was the attorney. And he's, I said to him, Mr. Olson, it's such an amazing honor to meet you and all this. And it's great, there's no marriage equality. And now the pressure is on for all gay people to get married. And he said, I don't create social, I create opportunities and options it's up to you to fill them out, and it was such a great answer. He said, "I don't care that there's all this pressure now." He said, "Now you're in the same rat race for the right husband or wife as all heterosexual people were." He said, "That's freedom." Yeah. And in some ways, what you're saying, marriage still has this kind of it's this it is a kind of cardboard yes. or the.
1: Yes, I think so. I mean, so it, it is. I mean, I learn a lot. You know, reading Austin with other people, Mm -hmm. I learn a lot about where we are as a culture. How
0: they respond to different things in the books, you mean? Yeah,
1: and what they're attached to. Yeah. You know, I mean, even the thing with marriage, it's such a funny thing when you think about it. Yeah. That's like, I want you to know somebody loves me somebody can live with me oh, you know like so to show the ring and say, yeah oh, yeah you know oh. it's just funny you know yeah
0: you're right actually yeah you know
1: or and it doesn't it's it's you know now as you say equal opportunity gays straight whatever um but there's still a kind of i need people to know
0: that's interesting you know? to demonstrate to the world
1: yeah yeah
0: i also think the other thing is that the state is in the business of deciding these things is absurd in any case i think yeah yeah. Like, who you live with, what you do at home, why does the state get to decide? And the state gets to decide when you can end it, too. Yes. Which is, people accept that, mm-hmm. that marriage and divorce are legislated, which is kind of, you would think, what what's this? What does the state have to do with this? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. As Lent, what does it, Engels explain to us, it's about property, mm-hmm. right? Like, when Engels writes on marriage, I think, in the 1880s or something, they say it's only to make sure that property gets passed down to the right kids. Yes, That's all right back is. to
1: the entail. Yeah, the entail, <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah. Is, is that word clear to your students, entailed, the estate was entailed?
1: <laughs> um, I mean, it, I'm just, I'm revisiting. It's so complicated. The fact that it's all about, you know, so tied to land and property and also i think the confusion i mean the entail is a complicated thing but often with pride and prejudice the confusion has to do with what what class are they or you know right. what i don't understand what this tranche is and that's a thing with austin's world maybe more to americans are like how we think about class or yeah, you know yeah, yeah. whether we can talk about class right and, how that maps onto these weird gradations of rank and gentility and landowning in these novels. It's a whole other kind of... But I think
0: it opens up something for American readers or today's readers that, you know, there's aristocracy, gentility, these classed things that we can't really figure out. But there's so many different things in America we can't really figure out. Yeah,
1: tell me how you would
0: translate it. Well, I would think, like, if they see The Bachelor... Like ethnicity and race and religion are categories there.
1: Oh, I not know. Of,
0: kind me. of unspoken.
1: Tell me but about The Bachelor, well, How does it work? Well, the first
0: African-American Bachelor. Mm. That's a big deal. Mm. And then there's like social media blow-ups because um, one, of the con- one of the contestants maybe said something how maybe they would or would be comfortable dating a black guy. Mm-hmm. So suddenly you have categories in there that are all supposed to be transcended by love. Yeah, like in Jane Austen. Ultimately, we think, well, Elizabeth should choose the man she loves, like mm-hmm. her father says, not the man who has the money to mm-hmm. save her from poverty. So, in some ways, these categories that we use—race, ethnicity, background—it's not just money.
1: Yeah,
0: you can be super rich.
1: Yeah,
0: but you're the wrong religion.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, there's a rewriting. It's called Pride. American sort of teenager, and she falls in love with the boy next door. And I think I mentioned I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, you do I, you I mentioned do. it. Okay, it's so like I look 2018,
1: at, like really recent, and it's Yeah.
0: I was just totally absorbed by this book because she's giving us a novel, a rewriting of Pride and Prejudice called Pride, where it's mapped onto oh, it's um Ibizoboy. Okay. 2018. Falls in love with the boy who just moved the next door, who's Darcy. And he has a horrible grandmother who's Lady De Burg really humiliates her Mm. and it's a similar plot
3: Mm -hmm.
0: and it's not just about money it's also about color about ethnicity Mm. about background Mm. about immigrants so it's mapped onto american reality today when you would think well a girl can just date the guy she likes so she she uses all these categories and makes them visible Mm The way we look maybe at Pride, Pride and Prejudice and try to puzzle through like, wait, yeah. what, what, what is their class status? Yeah. And you're thinking in Pride, in this book here, Ibi Zoboi's book, what is their ethnic status? Mm-hmm. Some are not the same. Yeah. So I think what Pride and Prejudice Great. can do, it can open up these things, even for gender.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, so you'd come with the perfect marriage partner. He happens to be a woman. Yeah. These different categories yeah. that we use today.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'll definitely read that. It's, it's I was it's even fun. Thinking, it's a fun book and it's But it's hard. It's hard to like map it into like for me it'll be very useful. I mean, I was even thinking of Lydia Bennett this reread. Yes. Like um, like what would the equivalent be of where my sister does something right. so crazy that and it has tarnished
0: Because she elopes with The soldier.
1: Yeah, I mean, basically she um, has sex with him and is the kind of, you know, be like a fallen woman thing that Darcy patches it up by making him get married. But, but, you know, like, say your relative did that today, it wouldn't then make everybody in the family take you off the, you know, wouldn't taint your prospects for life, (laughs) you know? So it's like, what could your relative do, even if they were, you know their political things mm-hmm. like let's say they could you know but it's like they could pretty much do anything it wouldn't taint right. your right 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 and then i thought mm, you know there is something about sex that still maybe has a taint to it so and i i was saying to this group like if you know my sister you'll think this is really funny that because this is like just completely a crazy idea that Let So if my sister had a certain kind of politics or whatever, not a big deal. But if I said, you know, my sister is a sex worker or like a particular kind of pornography actress or like is Stormy Daniels producer, right? you know, there is something still about that uh, that, you know, has a kind of effect.
0: Because they think by, because you're in the same family, you think, what do I have to think about your character now? Yeah, yeah. 'Cause that's what Jane Austen puts into play. Sort of she says Lydia's behavior is outrageous, but maybe he thinks, well, if she could do that, what if you're I think maybe there's also that.
1: Yeah, and you know, I didn't a friend of mine pointed this out to me that I didn't notice before. This line, it's like that the neighbors would be would get more mirth out of seeing Lydia come to town or come to the town. And so it's which means be a prostitute. Oh my so God. actually, it's so <laughs> explicit here, and it and Jane Austen. I mean, it's a joke. It's basically like you know, shot and Freud, uh, you know, exponentialize. So yeah, like, right. you know, Everybody's having so much fun thinking of Lydia as a yeah. ho bag. Yeah. but yeah. if she were really a ho bag, we're disappointed Give you know, we're denying them that pleasure by oh, having right. her right. married to Wickham. So I mean, just the levels of of dark darkness and reality. Right. And I th- actually to come back to the thing. That's what students like. That's what, you know, Jane, t- I mean, somebody who really comes to grip with every undercurrent, every unappealing part of social be- behavior mm-hmm. and also offers a kind of transcendence. Mm-hmm. That's Jane. Aust- that's what Jane Austen gives you. That's. And what you
0: mean she- by transcendence?
1: yeah it's weird because you could be so in the reality of that world and really reckon with every ugly part of the world that you're in and yet I think it is the form of it the perfection of it mm-hmm. the intelligence of it the detachment from it mm-hmm. that then opens up a kind of transcendence mm-hmm. from the mm-hmm. reality mm-hmm. that lets you come back into it survive it get pleasures out of it and, and you know be better in it
0: understand right. it mm-hmm. right if you think of Jane Austen's reputation, you I, I read your essay where you talk about sort of how her reputation sort of shifted. So her nephew published this memoir, which established her as kind of like hiding her writing and being a little bit of a spinster auntie and kind of benign, right, and writing her secret novels there. That shaped the image for quite a while. But you actually started us out by saying people like Churchill have taken... Austin, not as solace, not as escape, but kind of to understand where they are in the world during these major crises. Yeah. So what happens after this shift? And you say there's still another image of Austin still as kind of a crank or something misanthropic, cold yeah. person?
1: Yeah, I so that the essay that is pivotal, that I really interested me was This essay called Regulated Hatred Mm -hmm. uh, by the social psychologist out of Cambridge, D.W. Harding, writing just at the outbreak of World War II. Mm -hmm. And he gives this lecture and he basically says, if you thought Jane Austen wasn't, people are reading her to escape reality, think again. And actually his argument there is her world is not... A delicate satire escapist world Mm -hmm. it's a hard-ass world in which the main the dominant theme is Mm -hmm. how do I manage my hatred I live in a hateful world there are these hateful people Mm -hmm. how can I move navigate and this environment and my own emotional rational emotional response um, how do I do it Mm -hmm. and so he read then Austin's texts and re and the practice of reading Austin as a kind of playbook for regulating, managing, uh, hatred Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and hatred. I mean, you could think the time that he's writing in England. Hatred is just a fact. It is a fact of psychic and political reality and Mm -hmm. social reality and, and, from then on, at least in terms of criticism of Austin, I think you'd saw things before, but it really became impossible to characterize Austin as a delicate satirist, dear Aunt right. Jane. It her. just stuck to her. Hatred yeah. just stuck to her. Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 interesting. Yeah. It's quite interesting, actually, that she sort of. Underwent this shift in reputation.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I yeah. wonder where she is now in the pop, because she's so popular. <clears throat> so I don't know. What do you?
0: I think she's popular largely through the marriage plot. Mm-hmm. I think the plot drives some of it, but I think then people get that there's so much more. The things you've been describing, this kind of um, creating an entire world with so much complexity that includes negative or painful emotions, disappointments, displeasure hatred all these things it's Mm -hmm. not benign in any way and Mm -hmm. that that you know you are participating in someone's world who I think allows you to co-create like a couple things you've said oh someone pointed the sentence out to me or someone said this to me and I'm thinking you've read this book so many times you would be surprised Mm -hmm. that you can be surprised by a Jane Austen novel after having read it so many times I think that depth is what generates this interest it starts with the marriage plot i think a little bit mm-hmm. but i think then people realize there's so much um
1: yes there's an anecdote um it's a good one where somebody asked the analytic philosopher gilbert ryle hey you know professor ryle do you ever read novels and he says all six every year
0: oh that's funny
1: and once you know like a <laughs> philosopher or a certain intellectual or writer was a jainite you can really see it.
0: Really? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So that's amazing. All six every every year. I think the only other person is probably Proust who gets Mm. this sometimes. Yeah.
1: I want to, you have, I know some
0: people, like I have a friend and he rereads Proust every other year, all of it.
3: Wow.
0: Yeah. So, um, he actually teaches architecture at the Institute of Fine Arts here, uh, jean louis cohen and he's a major critic of modernist architecture but he said every other year in the summer i read all of post wow which i think is also how you, how you can be french mm. i think there's also there's <laughs> also that like, national culture yeah but yeah. there are very few authors who reward that kind of rereading i think yeah. in this
1: way well that's interesting the the culture thing i'm korean american and you know i think like my mom i mean we know austin has this appeal you know, especially in India, especially um, in other. But how she travels across cultures, like, I I never think Austin isn't mine because I'm not English. And I right. don't, I'm not an Anglophile, so I don't like, I don't care about Englishness when I read her.
2: Right.
1: Um, it, but it's my language, you know, that it is mm-hmm. my language. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, but, you know, I think other people do get those satisfactions from and, her. Yeah. I think
0: she gets, she does this English thing for English people, like yeah. Wolf does, but she's also not a national author. Yeah. I think, in a, I don't know. I mean, that's probably offens- you, offensive yeah. to a lot of English people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I actually yeah. also think Kafka is not a national author. Kafka wrote in German... So I have some access to it because I grew up in Germany and I speak German, but Mm -hmm. it's not a German author. He also didn't live in Germany. He wasn't German by nationality and all this, but certain authors I think have something else in addition maybe.
1: Yeah. I mean, just to throw gender on that, I, because she was a man's writer for a a long time. And I do think where we are, you know, because I get so few sort of, Cis men in my classes, hmm. and it seems like in i mean in Austin scholarship, it's very you know she is not a like a womany um subject, but in terms of popular interest, it does seem like she's thought of as you know like like straight men do not would not think to read her necessarily,
0: although you think that Churchill and people there's a certain tradition of men.
1: I know. So I I kind of feel like I want to open her back up, you know, to that. Um, You know, here I credit my mentor, Claudia Johnson. I mean, her work is so interesting on Austin, but a lot of it really taps into Austin's project of remaking masculinity Mm. and really showing people what a good man is. Yeah, right. And that still holds and you know that fantasy is available to all of us um it it does you know and and people gravitate to that to be a good mensch no matter what gender what orientation you are
0: and i'm going to ask you a very simple question which is is jane austen considered kind of acclaimed in the feminist tradition the way mary wollstonecraft and mary shelley is in a certain way like i think there's a certain kind of attachment in if you think of The Mad Woman in the Attic, kind of the yeah. big explosion of kind of really powerful feminist criticism. Like, they f- they look at Jane Eyre, yeah. it seems, more than Jane Austen. I mean, than Charlotte Bronte, right? Than Jane Austen. Yeah.
1: You mean, yeah, like the whole Gilbert Gubar. Yeah,
0: but like that's Gubbar, like a big, yeah. powerful yeah. strand of criticism now for 50 years, right? That's, yeah,
1: it's true. Oh, it's a good... I mean, I actually wanted to ask you the same question. Uh, I mean... and that's interesting the category and like what purchase it has today of women's writing or women's literature um or women um and and then what how Jane Austen fits into all of that I think is it's just totally open the way that I understand her um I don't even know how I understand I mean D.A. Miller has this great Um, little treatise called Jane Austen or the secret of style. Right. And it's a, it's a very beautiful and idiosyncratic piece of criticism, but basically one claim is that she's beyond, beyond the imperiums of gender or person or, you know, class. I mean, she is trans everything. Right. So that's one way in the history of writing. My own work and thinking as a historian of the novel is to go back to these women in 17th century France who basically invent the language of the Romain. And there's a story that they trot, they create this insurrection that's called the Fronde. And so it's a kind of civil insurrection, really civil war, and they're in charge and they do not succeed. And so, because of their failed political ambitions to revolutionize the state, they retreat into their homes. And what do they do in their homes? And and it's funny in the in the discourse in not just in their homes, but in the space called the ruelle, the space between the bed and the corridor, <laughs> they create the the novel, the language of the novel. And so uh, amazing, I know. And so I kind of <clears throat> think about that. Yeah, um, scene however unreal it is yeah 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 and freedom in language and then of course they're the subject of all kinds of libertine you know craziness moliere being the height of that um but that kind of freedom of language mm-hmm. in a circumstance mm-hmm. that is so constricted mm-hmm. in terms of real rights mm-hmm. there's something about that that mm-hmm. attaches to the phrase Women's writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, so in your afterword, where you do a reading of this novel and Elizabeth Bennet as claiming freedom even when you are not free mm-hmm. in your circumstances, mm-hmm. you know, that sticks to whatever women's writing, you know. But I that's think.
0: a beautiful example, these 17th century texts to mm-hmm. claim freedom when a legal, political, social definition of freedom isn't available. And they say, we're going to redefine freedom from the inside, mm-hmm. which is always the project and of from every within
1: language. Yeah, yeah, know. interesting. And the form that they'll take, you know, are these kind of romancy, love story, adventure stories, you right. know, and also about women. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, for me, that's the yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. primal scene.
0: That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really interesting. So we'll have another podcast oh. on, on women and writing, not in this, but in this way, rather what you're saying, that within language, people can create whole new realities. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that, I try to teach this to my students, the Astor Gates, the artist, said in a in a, in an interview I saw a couple of weeks ago, um, politics is downstream from culture. He said, culture wow. determines things. And I said, you know who also said that? It's Steve Bannon. <laughs> because if you, if you shape the culture, yeah. you're going to shape politics, mm-hmm. actually. And so and I think what you're saying, sort of these women writing in the space after they fail politically, supposedly, yeah. they still keep on being active politically, but mm-hmm. in a different way.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
0: So this, this idea that you can be creative, claim yourself, claim a space within language... That's actually really creative political work versus just working with politics as it already exists, especially when you're not in that process.
1: yeah. I mean, it really it comes back to before we started the podcast about the humanities and how they're what you know, how we engage. and you know the humanities is it's what really matters to people, you know, call it culture, call it literature. Um it is what is truly the most meaningful. You know, it's where you find meaning. And so, you know, that politics would derive from that, of course, makes sense.
0: We're gonna end on this um note. So I wanna thank uh you, Wendy. So to just remind our listeners. So, uh, Wendy Lee is associate professor of English at NYU. You run a couple of reading groups. So yes. some, with some luck, someone can become a member, I oh, think. For of sure. these. So yeah, definitely. We'll put the links. If there's a link to, you did one on Clarissa, I believe on Richardson. Oh, yes. Well,
1: I do them from time to time. Ta- yeah. Then so, they change. So, get so get we'll put
0: them in. So people can get in touch with Wendy at NYU. And, uh, I really look forward to your next book, Shane Austen and the End of Life. So that sounds uh, poignant.
1: Everybody buy their Warbler Press edition of Pride and Prejudice.
0: Thank you so much. I really, that is very flattering because I am by no stretch of any imagination an Austin specialist. So for me, this is like Mount Everest to even dare to write about Pride and Prejudice. I'm very grateful that you like Yeah, the, It's a nice album.
1: object. It's bigger also than most paperbacks. So it has a wonderful...
0: We designed it at Warbler yeah. Press so people can actually it's read nice. it because I want to encourage people to read these books and not find it like on Bible paper and small print and you can't get through it. So,
1: so. no matter how many editions you have, as yeah. you know, you can always use another edition of
0: Pride and Prejudice. One of the big Thank you so much. Thank you, yeah. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books.